Lord, what a treasure it is and what a privilege it is that you invite us to come just as we are, Lord, that we get to come running to you boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need, Lord. We thank you so much for meeting us here this morning. Would you show us more of the facets of who you are, Lord? Would we be reminded that you paid that debt that we could never pay, Lord, and that you didn't just leave it in the tomb, but you rose again three days later in victory and then giving that victory to us to walk out in this world. Would you bless this time, Lord, and we thank you for meeting us. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Sierra Bible Church. My name is Amy. If we haven't met, I am part of the staff here at Sierra Bible. And I am just up here before we get started going into Haggai again to uh, give you a few reminders that are going on this week. Uh, first of all, I want to make sure you know that it is Ski Skate Week this coming week, which actually means that the Arowana program and the youth group will not be meeting. The high school group actually just left this morning to Santa Barbara, and so they're on the road right now. If you think, them, think of them this week, they're gone through Thursday, please pray for them and their travel and everything they're doing in Santa Barbara this week. I also want to make sure you know that the offering statements, if you haven't picked them up, they are still uh, on the info booth outside. It's not outside. In the foyer. And if they're not picked up this week, we will be mailing them out to whatever address we have on file. So if, we, if you don't feel like we have your correct address, please let us know. Otherwise, pick those up. What's also back there is a book that's specifically for Wayne and Sandy. If you weren't here last week, we had a nice big party for them. And we had a book getting passed around where you could sign your name and, and send a little message. So if you weren't able to do that or you weren't here, that book is also going to be back there. Those things, again, will only be here this week. Once uh, that's kind of filled up, we will be making sure Wayne and Sandy get that in their hands. Uh, another thing going on this week that is not um, canceled because it's ski, ski Skate Week is our prayer and worship night. And I just, wanna, I just wanted to tell you about this once more. You might know about it, but it's something that we don't actually mention too often. It's every Thursday evening at 6 o'clock upstairs in Ray Hall. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's prayer and worship time. Um, and so that's happening this week, and it goes on throughout the entire year. I want to make sure you know about that. And lastly, uh, if you haven't noticed, last week we did start a new series. Uh, you might have picked up a new series card on your way in that has some awesome information about the book. We also have little journals, scripture journals, for purchase in the bookstore uh, if you're one to take notes. But also, if you're new to the church, we have a gift for you, and that includes that scripture journal. I know new is a relative term, so take it for what it is. If you've been here for a while, then I'm sorry if you feel cheated that you didn't get a gift. It was in the works, and now we have them. So uh, if you are new, please uh, connect with us in the back, and we'll get you that. Um, otherwise, let's get started with Pastor Jesse. morning. Turn to Haggai in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hands. One of these guys will gladly get you a Bible. I like how Amy mentioned if you don't get a, a, a gift, uh, shame on you. We gave out like 500, 600 hats, so I don't want to hear any whining. Uh, <laughs> those are some really nice hats, by the way. Um, my name is Jesse, as Amy mentioned, so if you're new, glad to have you with us. Uh, I'll just add a little bit to what she just stated. If you are new, you want to get newsletters, and you want to know what's happening at our church, and you want to know what's going on, uh, obviously the web page is there, Instagram, social media, all that jazz, but the app is probably one of the best places to go. It has a Bible in there, a place to take notes in there. It, it's got everything uh, from our past series and all of that, so I want to encourage you to, to download that if you have not done that already. Um, and Haggai, if you remember... Uh, a little bit of backdrop as we started last week. I tried to do a big overview of some of the themes that were in uh, Haggai. And, and for those of you who weren't here, you have to remember that the people of God, as they've gone out of the Exodus and, and into the promised land, uh, the, they started to kind of adopt some false ideologies and started to intermingle uh, their worship with other gods. And so God would send judges and, and prophets and other individuals to rebuke them for doing so, to the point that essentially that God says, hey, if you don't, 
stop, you're going to go into captivity. And sure enough, that is exactly what happens. The Babylonian empire comes, uh, they destroy Solomon's temple, which is the beautiful place to uh, have sacrifice and forgiveness and the presence of God is represented there. And so it was a major deal for this temple to be destroyed. A temple that was in the works all the way back to King David. Solomon builds it. Uh, Babylonians come in, obliterate it, obliterate Jerusalem, take the people of Israel, the the southern tribe of Judah, uh, the southern tribes of Judah, they take them 900 miles away to Babylon in captivity. Uh, And then 70 years, 70 years of captivity, 70 years of not being in their homeland, 70 years of being dragged across a border that is not their own. And uh, the Persians come. By God's grace, the Persians obliterate the Babylonians, and the Persians uh, decide to allow the Israelites, along with any other captives, to go home. And King Cyrus, the king of Persia at the time, uh, had this kind of belief that if he treated his subjects well, they would, they would serve the Persian Empire well. And so he actually sends them back to go back on the 900-mile journey, and he bankrolls them. He says, I'm going to pay for you to get there. I'm going to pay for the temple. I'm going to pay for you to rebuild. Just go and do it. Worship your own God. And so around 50,000 uh, isolated Jewish people go back to, uh, to Jerusalem. Now, some of them stay back. Some of the Jews felt like Babylonian, the Babylonian Empire, Babylon was their home, and some of them stay there. And so the people go back, those who go back to Jerusalem, they find the place desolate, they find it uh, isolated, they find the sand is encroaching upon its crops and upon its orchards. Uh, there's a drought and there's a famine, and instead of getting to work on God's temple, which again represents the presence of the Lord and forgiveness and compassion and mercy and all that is God, Instead, they become lackadaisical, and it takes them 16 years before this moment where God sends Haggai to speak first to the leaders, and then, uh, by the way, the leaders to the people to call the people to get back to working, back to labor, back to working for God's temple. Uh, and so, as you know, we, we try to make much of God's word here. We love God's word. We, we especially, man, I, I feel like all of the power, all of our hope, Everything that we could ever depend on is in Scripture. And I know that when I'm long gone, this is the one thing that is going to be left uh, for you. And so would you, with me, honor this word and stand with me as we typically do each Sunday to honor God's word? And this just allows us to position our hearts and our bodies to be in a place of submission to the Lord and to say, you know what, God, this is important to us. We don't want it to be uh, traditional. We don't want this just to be a tradition. We want it to be something that allows us to put ourselves in a place to hear from God. Verse 1, chapter 1. In the second year of Darius, Darius came after King Cyrus. In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, the prophet of Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat and you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above, above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and, the, and new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, the Lord their God, had sent them. Lord, would you speak to us through your word this morning? 
as your Holy Spirit sees fit. We trust you for it now, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. amen. Please be seated. Um, I want you to see there's, uh, I'm going to skip a couple things that I, I just in hindsight from, uh, let's just go back to the title slide. Sometimes these slides just mess with me. Um, I want you to see a couple things that are happening here. First of all, be reminded of the fact that God has called them to labor. But I think it's really important to see that before God speaks to the people, he speaks to the leadership. And so if you notice in the text, he mentions that the hand of uh, God, the hand of Haggai, which is that God speaking through Haggai the prophet, first speaks to Zerubbabel, who is going to be the king. He's actually in the lineage of the king which is the passage I put here in Matthew. Matthew shows us the lineage of Zerubbabel. So uh, as the king, which is to fulfill the house of David, the lineage of the king from David all the way to Jesus, Zerubbabel's in that lineage. So there's a connection. And as that word goes to Zerubbabel and then also Joshua, which is translated uh, in your Bibles, but a better term would be Joshua, so you don't mix him up with Joshua and the rest of the Old Testament. But he speaks to the leader's first. And I think this is important for you and I to understand that God's always going to hold his leaders more accountable than he's going to, than he's going to hold uh, some of you accountable. Uh, And I would pull this from scripture in, in regards to the reality that God says that not many of you should become teachers because you will what? Incure a harsher judgment. Uh, I think I have in here, if I bounce around to uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, The call in Hebrews for leaders and for the church in regards to the leaders is this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And the word account literally means that that myself, along with the other elders, are going to stand before God for the shepherding and the care and the preaching of God's word that goes forth from the church. And so the call for the church from scriptures that you would hopefully look to your leaders and see within your leadership a humility to approach God, to be biblically accurate, to be gospel-centered, and to love you well, to care for you well. Uh, Especially in a day and age where where we're seeing, uh, and I think the internet has exacerbated this, and it's to the detriment of the church as a whole. I'm sure all of us have heard stories of pastors that have had some kind of moral failing. Uh, and, and we just celebrated last Sunday uh, a man of 70 years of age who has retired from paid ministry and has pastored this church year after year, year after year. And he's done it well in Wayne Hoy, right? Uh, the Bible actually says, uh, look at your leaders, consider the outcome of their life, see how their life ends, see where they're at. So hopefully your leaders are a little bit ahead of you in some kind of form or fashion and imitate their faith. And we're to imitate their faith because we can see that the outcome of their life is fruitful. But then it it also tells us, though, Paul later will tell us to only imitate him or to follow him as he what? Imitates Christ. So Christ is the model. But you have to understand that God holds your leaders to a higher standard. He he holds them to a higher character, higher integrity, uh, all of those things. And so we must hold our leaders to a higher standard. And when they fail to meet that standard, Paul will tell essentially Timothy and Titus, move on from those leaders. And the qualifications for leadership are in Titus and Timothy. And if a leader does not fit within that qualification of leadership, that leader is not qualified to be a leader. Does it mean he's going to hell? I hope not. I don't think so. But it means that he is not going to be called to be a leader, should not be called to be a leader, because his life does not reflect that. And and we just have to understand that this is important. So God addresses leadership first. If you remember, when he shows up in the New Testament, he addresses the Pharisees, because the Pharisees have been adding to the word of God, and they've been putting yokes on people that don't belong to them and are not gracious and kind. And the law of God became more important than actually meeting people's Needs. Okay, so just quick side eddy note on this reality that our leaders need to be held accountable. So can I just say to you, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your continued prayers. Thank you for your support because our leaders need it. Amen. Now I want you to see in verse two, the tone of the text. Look at the tone. Verse two, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people. That's the tone. The tone is these people. God is in fact in this moment, he is frustrated with these people. God is displeased with these people. Why? Because they've delayed in building the temple. They've delayed in bringing God glory. And we're going to get to the reasons why here in a moment. But this is very similar to what Isaiah chapter 8 verse 11 says. The Lord spoke with me with a strong hand upon me and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people. So there's a group of people that are not God glorifying, Bible centered, Jesus elevating, gospel centered, if you will, that we should not walk in that way. A lackadaisical, lazy group of individuals who are not willing to live for the glory of God and all that they do. These are these kind of people. And so God says, don't do this. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, which has become a great verse for our church over the last couple years, and you'll know why when I read it here in a moment. Do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some of these people. That's essentially what he's saying. There's a, a group of people who have a habit of not gathering in a church and not gathering as a people to give God glory. And God says that we must come together as a corporate group of people so we can worship God and give him glory. Hebrews would go on to say that we should encourage one another more and more as you see the day drawing near. And we talked about the, uh, a little bit of the uh, eschatology implications that exists within this book in the temple. My friends, Jesus is coming back. You excited about that? I am a, let's go right now. Shoot, almost. So let's talk about our priorities. Last week we talked about a little bit of our investments. Uh, this week I want to talk about priorities and, and the people had their priorities wrong. Remember, 16-year delay. And they have several excuses for not building the temple that I think have... Uh, implications for us this morning. Look at the first excuse in verse 2. First excuse is in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come. That's the first excuse. We're not going to give God, God glory yet. We don't need to build the temple yet. We don't need to worship as we should yet because now is not the time. This, this is purely procrastination. And if you're a parent, you know, if you've ever told your child at any given time, it is now time to clean your room, and they will say, it's not time. It's now time to go to bed. It's not time, right? It's now time to eat your dinner. It's, it's, it's not time. It's not time. It's never the right time to do any of those things. And this is the excuse of the people. The timing is not right. I, I wanted to do a little bit of... I. I always kind of wrestle through, um, obviously, when I'm studying the text and then trying to bring it into our day and age uh, and, and see how that text plays into our day and age. And, and it takes a little bit of study to do that sometimes. And, and unfortunately, well, fortunately, I don't have all the time to get into that stuff, especially if I'm doing due diligence to study what's in the scripture. But I was able to do a little bit of research in regards to the time that Americans spend during their day and during their week. Did you know that almost 50% of us spend at least five to six hours a day on our phones. Now, I don't know if your phone's set up like mine, uh, but usually it goes off while I'm preaching. I had to disable it on my iPad so I didn't see it, but it will tell me the percentage above or below what I spent last week. Do you have that on your phone? You are 15% higher this week than you are last week. And you're like, 15%? That's like another hour and a half. And so what do we do? We distract ourselves with our phones. Uh, one article says that Americans, this is sad, this is so sad, that Americans by and large spend twice as much time on Netflix as they do with their friends. Another way to say that is, is people, you could make a conclusion, you could make a statement that we spend twice as much time entertaining ourselves as we do being in community. Uh, this is sad. This is to our detriment. And God is allowing his people and he's telling us, by the way, now is the time. Do you remember what scripture says in regards to salvation? Today. Today is the day of salvation. Some of you have been pondering baptism. Some of you have been pondering giving your life to Christ. 
Some of you have been pondering getting into a discipleship program. Some of you have been pondering about getting plugged into a community group. And can I, as a pastor who is going to answer before the Lord one day, as a pastor over your souls, today is the day. Do not delay. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. That rhymes. I'm going to start rapping. Excuse number two is also in the text, this particular text. Look at verse four. God asked the question, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Excuse number two is, is they're distracted by their own comfort. You see, the the wording here, paneled, is kind of fun. This is why I love studying the Bible because we lose so much if we just read the scripture without meditating on it and without digging into the original meaning. But that word paneled is actually very similar language that's used in the building of Solomon's temple. And so what God essentially is saying to the people is, do you think it's okay for you to take certain things that were supposed to be used for God's house, and instead of using those things for God's house, you're using them for your own house, for your own comfort? Uh, What's really interesting about this is that, that God, God is again pushing against the comfort so that people will be sacrificial and live for God, that God would be glorified. And, and, and what's fun is to kind of just look and see, you know, the bigger picture of what's happening in this time. I, just for this series, I should have done it a long time ago, but just for this series, I purchased this, uh, this map. It's in my office. If you want to go back there anytime, you can and, and take a look at it. But it's a huge, it's not a map, I'm sorry, it's a, it's a timeline. And the timeline literally, uh, it's, it's really, really big and very, very detailed. And at first, it's kind of hard to look at, but as you look at it, it starts to make a ton of sense, but it falls all the way from Adam and Eve all the way into modern history, uh, and it shows what's happening biblically in Japan and China and Rome, and you can see what's happening in other places of the world at this particular time. And what's interesting, around this same time, 520, 521, 522 BC, another guy rises up. So think of this for a moment, the contrast to this one part of the world a people who are supposed to live in the promised land of God. They're supposed to sacrifice to the Lord. They're supposed to let go of their own interests and live for the interests of God. And instead, they're living in their little paneled house, protected, guarded, and comfortable. And you know what's happening in another part of the world at this same time? A guy by the name of Buddha leaves his home, forsakes all worldly comforts to study philosophy. Because God's people were not focusing on the things of God, Satan raised up an antichrist of types to attract people to what they need because that becomes attractive. And what happens is as society grows more comfortable, it becomes attractive to become more sacrificial. And if we as Christians don't become that light and that beacon, Satan will make another light and beacon that people will be drawn to and will draw them away from Christ. Now I want you to understand something that's important here. Because some of you live in paneled houses. So you can look at this and think, well, maybe I need to give up my paneled house. That's not the rebuke. There's nothing wrong with having a nice wood floor. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. But, But there is something wrong if you spend all of your time and all of your energy on that house at the expense of building the kingdom of God. Right? Remember, the application is not that we would build a paneled church. We don't need a paneled church. The idea is it's a hard issue, that our hearts should be paneled with the things of Jesus and that we should be focusing on the things of Christ. And that means, that means at times you should ensure that you're being sacrificial towards the things of God and not being distracted by your own comfort. Philippians chapter three, verse 18. For many of whom I often told you and and now I tell you even with tears, he says, you're hearing the pastoral heart of Paul come across in this text. There's a lot of people I tell you about that they walk as enemies of the Christ. He says in verse 19, he describes what these people are like. He says their end is destruction and their God is their belly. It's Paul's way of saying that, that what happens with these people is that, that they no longer care about satisfying God. They only care about satisfying their own selves. Their God becomes their gut. Right? They comfort themselves with food. They comfort themselves with drink. They comfort themselves with all kinds of different things. And what's interesting about this is when we spend all of our energy on our own comfort and our own time, 
we're actually not withholding from the church. You're not withholding from the leadership that's going to give an account for your soul. You're withholding from God himself. I actually, a couple weeks ago, was sitting down with John Drollinger, who gave the opening this morning and prayed, and and we were discussing, and he helped me make this connection from Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Some of you will be familiar with this story in Acts chapter 5 because because what has occurred in the church at this time is the gospel has gone forth. People are getting saved by the thousands. They're being added to the church continually, right? It's just an amazing thing. And literally what people are doing is they're taking their goods, their, their resources, and their finances, and they're bringing it to the church that the church would then disperse it amongst those who had need. That's one of the reasons why, why we tithe to a church, because the leadership here is more aware of all of the issues in the community than you are. And so we're taking those funds and dispersing them to church planting and missions and deacons funds and, and helping people in the community and all of those other things. In fact, uh, this last week, I got an email from our deacon stating that someone in the church needed a car uh, and that that person worked for someone else in the church and needed to show up for their job. And I have no idea who any of these names are. Just got to see within minutes, somebody donated a car to somebody else that they could continue to work and to provide for their family. This is how the church operates. This is what glorifies God, not hoarding it for ourselves. Ananias and Sapphira, and as people are giving to the Lord, they, they actually decide to sell a great piece of land. I don't know what land was worth then in Jerusalem. Uh, I know that, because uh, we've got an open lot next to us, I know it, what that is worth, <laughs> a three-bedroom house, just down the street from us, it just went on sale. So if you're looking for a house, there's one available. It, it only 1.2 million for three bedrooms. You know, it's affordable. <laughs> Starter house. <clears throat> and essentially what Ananias Sapphira had done is they had sold this piece of property. They took a portion of the funds, gave it to the church to be used for the kingdom, and they lied they only gave a portion of it, and they acted and pretended and lied that they gave all of it. It's as if they sold the land for 200000 and they gave 100000 and said, we got 100000 for the land, here's 100000 but they actually kept 100000 for themselves. Now, I, I want you to see something here. It's not, not, there's nothing wrong with them keeping the 100000 The issue was that they lied about the 100000 They acted as if they were more generous, more giving, more Christian than they really were. And so Peter actually speaks to them here in this moment. He says to them in verse 4, while it remains unsold, wasn't it yours? And after it's sold, wasn't it at your disposal? It was your money. He goes on and says, you've contrived this deed in your heart. Why? You've not lied to man. You've lied to God. In fact, the verses previously to it says, you've, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You're lying. When Ananias heard these words, such a serious thing, even in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, as soon as Ananias hears those words, what happens to Ananias? God's like, I'm done, man. I'm, you're not going to glorify me, and, and, and there's no hope for you. And whatever God is sees in his sovereignty, God's like, today's your day, yo. Zap. Right? And then comes along his wife. It's kind of hilarious and sad at the same time. Here I come. I'm a righteous Christian. I worship Jesus, and I give my funds to the Lord. Hi. Have you seen my husband? In fact, I have. And you also have lied. Zap! And Sapphira dies. So there's this punishment that occurs because of lying to God. And again, this is all to say that that God is rebuking the people of Haggai, and he could be even now rebuking some of us, that we are not giving the time that God deserves. We are distracted by our own comfort, and we're not giving God the things that God rightly deserves. Or maybe we're pretending we are, but in reality, we're not. Here's the third excuse, deterred by our opposition or deterred by opposition. To get this point, you have to go outside of this particular text and go to kind of a sister text in Ezra. So remember, um, Ezra and Zechariah all written around a similar time. So if you think, hey, Haggai's a really short book, it's easy to understand, uh, and it's a quick read through, uh, really to understand uh, Haggai the way you should, you should dive into Ezra as well. Uh, and in Ezra chapter 4 tells us what is happening in the climate in this particular day. So if you have the, the chance, turn to Ezra chapter 4, and, and I want to read this and, and have you see it because it's important at how they're deterred 
by their enemies and their opposition. Ezra 4.1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that they return, that the, the returned exiles were building the temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, that's the king figure that's in Haggai, and the heads of the father's houses, and he said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, the king, Joshua, the priest, and the rest of the heads of the fathers, the houses of Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with building this house to our God. We alone will build it to the Lord, the God of Israel, the king of Cyrus, the king of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, and he made them, they made them afraid to build. So essentially, this is what happened. They come back from exile. The mixed races of Jewish people say, well, we worship God too. But the reality is, is they actually also worshiped other gods. They began to mingle their faith with other gods. And so they want to join in on the work. Hey, we worship God too. Well, by God's grace, Zerubbabel's like, uh, no, you don't. Because if you worship me and something else, you worship not me. That's what he's saying. You can't build this. You can't taint this. We're going to take care of this for ourselves. We don't need your help. Uh, I think I just, as I was reading this, and I say this to, you know, again, because our leaders will give an account to the Lord. But when there was an opportunity to take funds from the government in the last two years, and we almost did that thinking that, that we needed those funds to get through the pandemic. And luckily for us, the leadership was wise enough and smart enough to say, we do not need the government's funds to build the house of God. And so we didn't take the money. Oh. <laughs> now here's the true blessing of it all. The last two years have been the best financial years of Sierra Bible Church in the history of Sierra Bible Church. That only allows us to do more for the kingdom of God. And the other thing we have to understand is when you do God's work, you must, number one, expect opposition. And number two, you can never expect the cooperation of the enemy in a truly spiritual task. Right? One way you know that you're doing God's work is there are forces that oppose you in that work. And one of the things that you guys don't always see is how sometimes that plays out. The enemy wants to destroy the unity of this church. In fact, I listened to a, um, a really good message, uh, a few messages, a uh, podcast actually, and it was about uh, a church down in Southern California. And, and the pastor, literally the title of his series he decided to go through as the church grew uh, was um, How to Kill Our Church. <laughs> That was the title of his whole series. And he spent several weeks just preaching on this is the way in which you can destroy what God is doing in our church. And one of the ways that we can destroy kingdom building is by allowing us to be divided by things that we should never be divided over. You know what unifies us, friends? The number one thing that unifies us is we're all sinners and we're all in desperate need of salvation and grace. The other thing that unifies us is we have a holy Bible that has existed year after year, century after century, hundred years after hundred years, thousand years after thousand years that has remained true, that draws people closer to Jesus, closer to obedience and closer to glorifying him. And then the third thing that unifies us is we all believe in one true God that is the son, Jesus Christ, who has died for our sins, conquered death, resurrected out of the grave and has ascended on high. And then he's given us the Holy Spirit to live, to mortify sin, and to live for him. Amen? Let us not be deterred by our opposition. The fourth excuse is in verse 9. Here's the fourth one. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because my house lies in ruins, while each of you, what? busies himself the fourth excuse is i'm just i'm busy i can't do it because i've got too much going on i can't come to church because i got to go to ski races I, I can't serve on a particular thing because you know i've got this going on i've got that going on i mean, it's the american mantra to say i'm busy which is hilarious because if you actually study cultures in the world 
we have more leisure time than any other culture ever. Like, ever. Like, if, if, if there were, a, if Guinness Book of World Records said, who has the most recorded leisure time ever, we'd be in the World Book of Records. And so for us to say, I'm busy, what that means is you have complicated your life with things that you should not have complicated your life with. And you're not, you're, you're not focused on the things of God, but rather you're focused. And notice, says you're busy with what? You're busy on your own house. You're busy on your own things. You're busy doing your own curriculum. You're busy serving your own household. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking care of your household. You should, but there's something wrong if you're only focused on your household. You know that's true of the church as, whole, as a whole? Like, we should, as a church, we, we need to focus on discipleship. We need to focus on all of the one another's, the love one another and forgive one another. And we need to focus on all of that. But may it never be said that the church is not here for the better benefit of the community. In fact, I don't know how many of you have been uh, privy to any of the stuff that's been happening in our own local school district. Anybody privy to that? I mean, if you just do a little search in Sierra Sun, you'll see that there's been quite a bit of, of frustration with the faculty and and some other parents, you know, you've got parents who are saying, I don't want my kids to be masked. It doesn't make sense that, you know, the rest of the world is unmasked and my kids got to sit. And, and so parents are rightfully so speaking up for their children, which they should. And they're speaking up to a board that they voted for, which they should. And the board has felt threatened and they've, it's become a big haboo and police officers have had to show up for the thing and all of that. And, and you know what happened here during that, that time, just about a week, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that? Someone donated a bunch of, of food and bread, and, and a few of our deacons and pastoral staff went down to the school district, gave that food and the bread to the teachers. And we came back, and a few days later, we got an email from somebody on staff at the school, and they said, that loving gift crossed, made, built some bridges that didn't exist. And they said, man, that church is always so nice to us. They're always so loving to us. They're kind to us. And, he, and, and what they said was, through all of the division, you showed some unity, and they're appreciative of it. He's, please, please continue to keep us in mind. Because you know what? These, these teachers, they may disagree with you, but they are made in God's image. And we do need to love them. We can disagree with people and still encourage them and strengthen them and serve them. Right? When we talk about kingdom building, which is what this book really is all about building the kingdom of God. Jesus is really clear that if you're going to build the kingdom, you start by serving people. You start by washing feet. And I get frustrated sometimes. It's actually, if I'm honest, it's often. Because here I stand up front and people think that there's something maybe special or unique or special anointing that I have or any of that. And I, I just think all of that stuff is, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to be focused on that because the Bible is really, really clear. The most anointed person of us all is the one no one sees washing people's feet. You know, I, I do my part. But the part that you play serving this community and the jobs that you have and the places that you work, the people that you encounter, do you know that's just as anointed, just as beautiful, just as glorious to God as the man who stands up front and preaches? You know what that makes me? That makes me the least important. And it makes what God has called you to do more important. And so may we not be deterred by opposition. May we not be focused just on our own house. But may we be busy about those things that will glorify God. There's a fifth excuse. I told you there'd be five. Here's the fifth one. They were discouraged by the results. Again, these are all reasons why they're not building the temple. They're discouraged by the results. You've got to go a little further in the passage uh, in, in the book to get this particular point. But if you just peruse in Haggai just a little bit further, right? It's a short book. Go to chapter 2. Look at verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. Haggai asked the people a question. Who is left among you who saw this house in its for, former glory? And now he asks the question, how do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes? This is what Haggai is saying. He's saying, how many of you, how many of the 50,000 that are here remember Solomon's building? Some of you remember it. You remember how beautiful it was, how much time it spent. It took a long time to build. You know all the gold that existed in there. And, and the reason he's saying this is because the new house does not look as glorious as the old one. And so Haggai's saying, hey, listen, are you, are you making 
making a big deal out of the gold and the ornateness and the beauty? Or are you recognizing what the temple represents? The temple represents God. It doesn't matter how big it is or how small it is or, or what have you. It, it matters that it's there. It's what it represents. I was thinking about this in the first service. It popped in my mind uh, about a, a very real struggle that Allie and I had had when, when we moved from Southern California back to Northern California. Or rather, I moved back from Southern California back to Northern California, and I forced my wife to move from Southern California to Northern California. That first year we were here was hard. I mean, it was difficult. And the reason was because we came from a mega church. I mean, this church, it was just booming and bustling, and God was doing all kinds of great things. In fact, you could, like Amy does announcements, they make announcements, say, hey, everyone show up at prayer night. We do prayer night, and, you know, we get 25, 30 people maybe. Maybe it's 10 some nights, or it's a small group. But, man, when you were in SoCal and you said, hey, we're doing a prayer night, 500 people showed up. I mean, all you had to do is say, we're doing this thing, and 500 people would show up. So we moved to, Calif- to Northern California here in Truckee, and the church was in a much different place than it is today. And this church had been without a youth pastor for two years. And it had been dependent on volunteer leaders to lead the group. And so I came to Northern California with a mission and, and hopeful to, to, you know, attack the kingdom of God and build the kingdom of God in Truckee, California. I had a five-year plan because that's, you know, how people think. God told me five years. I mean, literally, that's what I thought. And, uh, and in five years, we were going to do a glorious thing, and we were going to leave our imprint back, and we'd go somewhere else, and people would think, oh, how great Allie and Jesse are. And when we showed up that first night, the first thing that occurred was those leaders who had served for two years, you know what they did? Thank you for being here, sir. Goodbye. <laughs> so I had no leaders. And then between junior high and senior high, we had eight kids. Now that may... Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, but for me, coming from the contrast of, of this kingdom thing in Southern California and seeing people get saved every week and seeing people get healed every week and seeing all these just crazy, amazing things, and then coming to Truckee, California and seeing eight kids. And I remember looking at Allie and Allie looking at me and we were like, what did we get into? And my wife cried for the entire first year we were here. And it wasn't long where God began to minister to our hearts and say, Jesse, if you'll be faithful to build into those eight kids, I'll build the kingdom. Just be faithful. Be faithful to teach them the word. Be faithful to show them to to Christ. And it was only a matter of time before that group went from eight to 150. And some of those individuals are still here at this church today serving the Lord. One of them just played the cajoni thing or whatever that's called. Yeah, another one just sang for you this morning. Several of them are over there at Children's Church serving your kids right now. Some of them have become pastors. Our youth pastor, Caleb, came to our youth group. Because when you take your eyes off of the building and off of the size and off of how big something is and you pour into individuals, God will build his kingdom And God's just simply asking the question, have you come into this place and are you comparing it to other places? Because if you're comparing it to something else, you're going to miss out on what God's doing here. You're going to miss out on the unique beauty that God has done in this church for the last however many years. And you're going to miss out on what God's going to do for the next however many years. Because I promise you this, that if we are faithful to God's word and the gospel, God will build his kingdom in Truckee, California, and there will always be a safe haven for Christians here at Sierra Bible Church. So, let us consider our time. Let us consider our comfort. Let us consider how we deal with our opposition. Let us consider how busy we are or are not with the things of God. And may we not be discouraged by results. But let's just pour into this house of glory. Now, the people's misery is interesting because they, they're not responding. These are their excuses, and God's rebuking their excuse. He's, it's like my dad used to say. I won't be able to say all of it here because I don't want to be glib. <laughs> my dad used to tell me something about excuses, that everyone had them. Some of you know, and some of you don't know. God makes a link between their behavior and their circumstances. 
And he gives us several things that occur because they are no longer pouring into the glory of God. He says, this is what's happening to you because you're not pouring into the glory of God. So I have this guy here to illustrate. You guys, does anyone remember Ahmed the terrorist? (laughs) I kill you. And if you don't know, you don't know. So this is essentially, if you can imagine the people of Israel, these are the things that God says to them. He says, look at verse 6 and verse 9. The first thing he says is you've sown much and you've harvested little. The first consequence of making excuses to not pouring into the glory of God is is you're going to work really hard and you're not going to see a harvest. You're not going to see any fruit. And, and, and he says, he says, it's not yielding for you. you. You can see there's even poverty amongst the beasts of the field. Nothing is producing. But in verse 6, he also says, you eat, but you're not filled. Eat, buddy. And you just keep stuffing yourself, hoping that if you eat, you'll finally be satiated. Man, life, if I just do this, I'll finally feel, oh, shoot. He says you eat and you're not filled. And he goes even further. He actually says you also drink, but you're never satisfied. What's really interesting, again, remember I said you got to study the Bible. This word full, he says you drink, but you're never full, it's the Hebrew word for drunk. He's saying something. He's saying, you know what? You're actually trying to drown the pain you have in alcohol and addiction. It doesn't work. We don't know if the grapes weren't strong enough or if God just allowed them not to have it or if it's just the natural result that we all know that that drugs and addiction never lead to a filled life. He goes on and and says "You, you clothe yourself but you're not warm. It's like Isaiah says. He, he says in Isaiah 28, the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Have you, have you ever gone on a trip and brought a too small blanket and it was cold? This is essentially what God is saying. Your life is like that. You keep trying to cover yourself, but you're still chilled to the bone. There's another thing he mentions as well. This is what this is for. Some of this was last minute. I don't know if you can tell. He says, you, you take money, but it's like putting it into a satchel with holes. You eat, you're not filled. You drink, it's never enough. You clothe yourself, but you're always cold. You spend money, and you're never able to save. I mean, it's just... A one way, it's a small way to, of what God is saying is if, you, if you're going to be preoccupied with your own interests and your own glory, it's like being a hamster on a hamster wheel. You're just going to keep spinning and spinning and spinning. And, and God is actually encouraging at this particular moment as I'm going to encourage you as well. That hardships, difficulty, emotions are an opportunity to do an assessment of your life. It's an opportunity for you to to look and say, okay, and you know what? This is why cell phones are so extremely dangerous. Satan is doing anything and everything he can to not get you to think about why you actually are going through what you're going through. I mean, just shut the phone off for crying out loud. Turn off the technology. Go, go do something to isolate yourself between you and the Lord and read scripture for crying out loud. I mean, There is so much junk out there for you and I to listen to. So much, I mean, there's a plethora. There's no excuse, first of all, to not study well. But at the same time, do what no one else is doing. Isolate yourself. Be alone for a little while with just you, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and Scripture, and see what God will do in your temple. Are you building within your own heart, right, those panels of this guy or this gal or this person or this thought, or this money, or this comfort? Are you building those things in your heart? Or are you allowing yourself to sit before the Lord and say, God, build within my temple the correct walls so that this temple will never be crushed, never dismayed, never discouraged, never fearful, but strong with you, Lord. Do an inventory. Uh, I mentioned this to my kids quite regularly. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Remember I said, this is all an opportunity 
to see this drought or this famine that may be existing in our souls, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him. So first of all, what Hebrews tells us is if you're a true child of God, guess what God's going to do? He's going to allow certain emotions to creep into you, to discipline you and wake you up. That's one way I know God is rebuking, reproving me. Well, you know, one of those things that, that, that's a little red light, anxiety. The moment I start feeling anxious, I, I have to do an inventory of, of why do I feel this way? Uh, uh, one thing that happened this week, uh, a couple weeks ago, sorry, is, is um, one of my children got a, a, little, a little lump in his throat. And he wasn't sick, didn't have a cold. And so my wife mentioned, you know, someone else in the church, they had a, their son had recently got Hodgkin's lymphoma and he's healing, he's doing great. But, uh, you know, so it worried her. And, and, and that was the first thing she told me in the morning. And so I, I got to work and all of a sudden I, I, I just was, I was kind of discouraged and my mind was not in the right place. And, and I felt angst inside of me. And, and if I would have just got back to work, just got back to studying, just got back to looking at my phone, got back to looking at the computer screen, which I didn't do, I just asked the question, Lord, why do I feel this way? And then God shared with me, because you're concerned for your child. And just take some time to pray. So I did. Lord, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. Is he okay? And, and then my wife texts me and says, oh, guess what? He has a fever. He has an infection. Like, okay, as far as we know, he's just fighting an infection. But the point being is that if we just push aside why we feel the way we do and we try to numb it with alcohol or food or entertainment or comfort, you'll never receive the discipline of the Lord. You'll ignore it. My children do not want to be disciplined by me as their father. They absolutely hate it. And if I'm really, really honest, I don't like it either. Right? You remember when your dad used to say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And in your mind, you're like, okay, dude. I understand that now as a father. There's an emotional side to disciplining your children, but because you love them, you discipline them. You know what a lot of people don't like? They don't like rebuke. They don't like being told they're wrong. They don't like being challenged in their beliefs. They want to continue to bolster what they believe. But God says a true child is disciplined because he's a true child. And if you're not a true child, then you're not going to receive discipline. Pay attention to the drought in your life so that God can correct something in your life so that you can be filled back up with joy. Pay attention. This is, again, why oftentimes within the text it keeps saying, give careful thought to your ways. Like, really think about where this is going to take you, where it's going to lead you. And then we end up with how do we reorder our priorities. We're going to conclude with these thoughts. Look at verse 8. Go up, bring, build. Go up, bring, build. Those are the precepts. When you study Scripture, you look for precepts. You look for commandments. You look for things where God says, do this. And this is what God is essentially saying to the church. Go. Matthew 28, remember? Go. Another way to say this is some of us are to go, some of us are to bring, and some of us can build. Whatever your talent or your treasure is, you, you use that. But another way to say this is church starts somewhere. I like what Dave Ramsey says in regards to tithing. He says, you know, because most of the time the church doesn't tithe and give but Dave Ramsey will say as he budgets things out, he says as you budget, just start somewhere. Start somewhere for crying out loud. Get, hopefully you can get to a place of 10%, which is kind of what we see in Scripture. But you need to be a true, cheerful giver. So if you can't give out of cheer, you shouldn't give at all. You should give because it's a joy to give because you can see it going into kingdom things. But friends, you got to start somewhere. Maybe start at 1%, 2%, 3%. And, and, and I'm not just talking about money, right? Because it's not all about money. It's about your time. It's about what you do with your life. Start somewhere. Started a Bible study. The, the amount of Bible studies we have at this church is ridiculous. You are blessed. We have men's groups throughout the entire week. We have women's groups throughout the entire week. Prayer night on Thursday night, church on Sundays, college group on Sunday nights every other week. Is there an excuse to not start somewhere that you will grow in your relationship with the, the Lord? Absolutely not, because we don't want to fall into the rebuke in James where he says, well, you listen to the word, you're hearing it preached, but my goodness, you're not doing it. I want to be alive. 
don't want to be like the skeleton that lies at my feet. Because God literally says that he's going to take these bones in salvation, rise them from the grave, and they will walk, and they will live again, and he will put flesh on them, sinew on them. Another thing that God is essentially saying here by way of precept is give me your best. Go to the hills. You see in Kings where he talks about this, he actually is saying, go get the cedars of Lebanon. I don't know what the equivalency of that is. I don't have a lot of wood in my house. But this is whatever, whatever whoever here has a really nice home, you know, cherry wood, buckle wood, is that a, is that a wood? Redwood? I don't know. All I know is wood's expensive. But God's saying, give me your best. Don't give me half-hearted effort. When you raise your kids, do it for the glory of God. When you love your wife, do it for the glory of God. When you love your husband, do it for the glory of God. When you love your church, do it for the glory of God. When you give, do it for the glory of God. When you go on mission, do it for the glory of God. When you preach the gospel, do it for the glory of God. When you share your testimony, do it for the glory of God because that ultimately should be our motivation. And if you don't believe me, see it in the text. He says, build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the paths of life. That word life, as I looked it up this week, means to make alive or to make a life, a good life. Uh, The wording here is to revive like it's springtime. And he says, because in your presence there's fullness of joy and at your right hand there's pleasures forevermore. What God has done is he has connected intimacy with him, glorifying him with our own pleasure and happiness. They're connected. John Piper says it best. I'm sure it says it better somewhere in Scripture, but Piper's going to do for us right now. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And we are most satisfied in him when he is most glorified in us. If you're not hearing me clearly, your joy is 100% dependent on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Eugene Peterson, great author, he, he talks about one day looking out at some tree swallows and there's a mother chick there with three little chicks and, and as these little chicks are on the branches, the mom is starting to push them towards the edge of the branch so that they can fly. And as they move down the line, the first one falls off, goes down about four feet, Wings begin to spread and the chick flies. A second one, same thing. But Eugene Peterson, as he was looking out of his window at his home, he noticed this third chick he calls had a bulldog tenaciousness about him. He said, but the parent was persistent. And the parent began to peck desperately at the clinging talons until the chick began to hang upside down on the branch which only allowed more access for the mom to peck at the feet. And sure enough, the chick weighed the pros and cons, let go of the branch, and began to fly. And this is what Eugene Peterson says about this. Birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. They can walk, they can cling, but flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living their best, gracefully and beautifully. He goes on to say, there's a lot of things that we can spend our time pursuing as human beings. But ultimately, it is the pursuit of pleasure and the glory of God that lies at the core of our being as those created in his image. Again, it's just a more complicated way to say you're most satisfied when he's being most glorified in you. And so as we leave this place and we sing, we allow God to do an inventory of our priorities. Are we too busy with things we shouldn't be busy with? Are we spending enough time in the things that God wants us to spend time in? I mean, that's why I love Psalm 119. It is literally in the center of your Bible, It is the longest chapter in the Bible. 
And it's all about meditating on the Bible. I guess I'm done. Let us glorify him in all we do. Let us challenge, let him challenge you to do more for the glory of God. And may your joy, may you see your joy increase. And may God continue to build his kingdom in the Tahoe Basin. Would you stand with me as we pray and we sing? Lord, we ask you to do a great work in and through us this morning. It first starts with us. It starts with your leaders because you hold us accountable. And then to the congregation. And then out into the world. And it would be a shame for us to gather in a building and not be moved by you, to not hear from you. It would also be a greater shame to not be obedient as we leave these doors and to do the things you've called us to do. May we not delay. May we not make excuses. May we reorder our priorities to bring you glory. We trust you for these things in Jesus' name. The church said, amen. Every single month, um, we're going to be introducing a 